So the tough part about those cool graphics is that I totally can't live up to it now. I'm like, oh man, my sermon's going to be so lame after we just saw that video. Maybe we should just watch the... Well, never mind. All right, so let's read the Bible. First Kings chapter 17. If you have a Bible today, we're going to be in First Kings pretty much all morning. Go ahead and turn there if you have your phone, whatever you want to do. We're, we're going to start in First Kings 17, but we're going to backtrack a little. So let's start right here. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And this is the first time we've ever heard of this guy. Like, who is he? Where is he from? Tishbe? Doesn't mean anything to me. Didn't mean anything to them either. Who sent him? He says that God sent him and... And there's no explanation, no character development, no backstory. He just shows up on the scene, and this guy with no backstory, no explanation, from the middle of nowhere, he shows up and he's standing before one of the most important kings in the ancient Near East, one of the greatest, most powerful kings of the time, Ahab, and he just throws down this curse. God's going to shut off the valve. All that stuff that you think you have control over, that other gods have control over, God's going to shut all that off. And this is what's coming your way. I don't know if you guys know the story of Elijah. If you don't, we're going to have a lot of fun the next few weeks. But in the next three chapters, chapters 17, 18, and 19, these stories unfold of this Tishbite from the middle of nowhere. And these stories are awesome. He's fed by ravens, and then he's chased by armies and searched out. There's a manhunt going on for him. And then he revives a widow's son, and then it's one against 400, and he calls down fire from heaven, and he runs and beats a chariot in a foot race. And then he gets depressed, and an angel has to feed him. And then God meets him and speaks to him in a gentle whisper like this. This is the stuff of faith. These are the stories that resonate deeply with me. Like I I hear this and I want to pray like that. I want to see this power. I want to have that faith. Like I, I want to see the dead kid come back to life. I want to see fire fall from heaven. Like I want a God that he has. I want faith that he has. I want to know the secret to this guy named Elijah. And the more I pour over the stories the more I think there's a reason why God didn't give any backstory to him because you don't need to know anything more than his name. Like his name is his message. It is his secret. His name in Hebrew is like three parts. El is the generic Hebrew word for God. The I in there, Eli, is is a personal pronoun. It makes it, it means my, my God. And the last part, Jah or Yah, is a reference to God's personal name. I am that I am. The name that God presented to Moses at the burning bush. Who is this man who showed up, who has the power, the oomph, to stand before the most powerful king in the region? His name is my God is Yahweh. And that's all you need to know. Like That's his source of power. That's his courage. That's his faith. That's what brings a dead boy back to life. And allows one to stand against 400. 
Over the next four weeks, we are going to explore this life and this faith and this God behind the man. Today, uh, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to set the stage. have to warn you a little. I studied ancient Near Eastern like mythology a lot in seminary. And I like to nerd out on this history and mythology stuff. So just come along for the ride. It's going to be a little fun. Don't worry, it's pretty graphic at times, so it'll keep your interest. Um, today we're going to set the stage. And what I want to do is if, if we want to possibly understand this man, Elijah, if we want to know and trust and live out this faith that he did, if we want to talk to God the way he did, if we want to experience that, then we need to go back 3,000 years. And I want to enter into this ancient Near Eastern world that Elijah just shows up on the scene at. And I want you to imagine a world that completely ignores God's word. I want you to try and imagine a world where people are offended if you say there's only one way to God. I want you to imagine a world that thinks they know God, but really has no idea who he is. I want you to imagine a world that is obsessed with sex and money. A world that desperately needs one man or one woman or someone Who's going to stand and stand for what's right and say, my God is Yahweh. I want you to imagine a world that's just like ours. So we're going to start just a little bit before this and we're going to, we're going to cover, oh, a few hundred years of history. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. If you just leap back one page, if you're in your Bible there. And it starts like this. And the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. We're in this time known as the time of the kings. And let me, I'll give you a little timeline here. We're in the time of the kings. There's kingdoms right here. And so this is the time that's going to span, oh, just about 400 years of history, from the time of Solomon all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem, 586, 587 B.C. So we're going from back about 930 B.C. all the way to 586 B.C. That's the time of the kings. In, in your, our Bible, we have first and second kings, but in the ancient Hebrew Bible, it was just one book. It was called Kings. It chronicles the history of God's people under the kingship of this. And if you, if you go back through first kings and you leave through the first 12 chapters, really first 11, you're going to find this guy named Solomon. Solomon, he, he was a super king, and he created this giant kingdom, this blue space right here, the kingdom of Israel. And he does, during his time, he have unprecedented wealth and peace, and he built the temple, and everything was big and happy and mostly good. A couple little problems at the end, but mostly good. It was blessing, unlike the Israelites had ever known. Well, then in chapter 12, something happens. Solomon dies. And his son is born, and his son takes the throne, and his son is named Rehoboam. Well, Rehoboam comes in, and he has an opportunity to now lead God's people into all kinds of blessing and do all this. But the problem is, is Rehoboam, he wants to prove that he's bigger, stronger, and meaner than his old dad. To use his words, he says, my pinky is thicker than my dad's waist, which is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying, I'm the baddest man you ever met. The problem with that is uh, the way he's going to enforce this is he says, if you thought my dad's taxes were bad, you're going to pay me even more. If you thought you had to work hard for my dad, I'm going to make you work even harder, like dogs. To which everyone says, um, not going to happen. 
And so these 12 tribes of Israel that formed this giant nation here, they just split in two. Ten of them succeeded. Ten of them said, we're leaving and there's nothing you can do about it. And he wasn't the baddest man around. He just had to let him go. So the nation, the, the, this people of God is suddenly split in two. And then Judah, this area in the south, is what ruled by Rehoboam. And in the north is this area called what we call Israel. So let me, just a little thing that can be confusing. This is Israel, the united nation, the, the one people of God. But when they split, this part in the north is now called Israel. So the same, so different passages of scripture, you'll see Israel referring to sometimes just this northern kingdom, sometimes the whole thing, depending on the timeline you're reading from. So in this northern kingdom, there's this guy, this ingenious leader. God gives him the kingdom. His name is Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam's going to be an important guy, a guy that we should know a little bit about. See, what happens is Jeroboam gets in, he takes the throne, he's like, this is the best thing ever. Rehoboam screwed up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cash out on this. But the problem is, is when, when he moves up there, he realizes there's one little thing. If you notice, Jerusalem, the holy city, the city where the temple was built, the, the city where everyone was supposed to come back to worship three times a year, the city where God resided, right? That city is in the south, that's in Judah. And these Israelites, here's the thing. Jeroboam's looking around and he's like, if, if my people go back there three times a year, you know what's going to happen? Well, two things are going to happen. One, they might decide to rejoin Rehoboam and go back to the old ways. And then I'm out of my kingship. And even if that doesn't happen, what they're going to be doing is three times a year, they're going to be bringing their tithes and offerings all to the southern kingdom. It's, it's just a horrible economic policy. We're going to pump all of our money out of the nation. It's terrible. So what is a king to do? He's like, I know. I know what we'll do. Now, now Jeroboam was no theologian. He was a pragmatist. And his plan was this. It's an official policy I call how to ruin your relationship with God. First step, ignore the parts of the Bible that you don't like. And that's his plan. He says, what we're going to do here is instead of going all the way down to Jerusalem, here's the thing. Do you really want to travel two, three days to go down to Jerusalem to worship God? We're going to create two convenient locations. One in the north, one in the south. Now you won't have, never have to travel more than a day to worship your God. And you know what? It, it, in Jerusalem, it's all those old fuddy-duddies. All those priests are those old guys. They wear that funny outfit, the big beards, the ironic priesthood. You don't want that. You want the cool, hip priests. You want priests that look like you. So we're going to do away with that priesthood, and we're going to start our own priesthood. Anyone can apply. And you know what? Right now, God has set it up so that you're supposed to come for the biggest worship service of the year in the seventh month. But you know what the seventh month is? Well, this is the, the fall harvest. That's terrible timing. Who wants to give up that busy time of year? So what we're going to do is we're going to create two convenient locations. We have this cool, hip, relevant priesthood. And then we're going to shift the time. So we're not going to worship in the seventh month. We're going to worship in the eighth month when everyone's got time off anyways. Now, here he has created something that is relevant and convenient. And then he's adds one more thing. What we really need, what people want today, they don't, they don't want to worship a God they can't see. People are visual these days. You've got to give them something. So what we're going to do is we're going to give them an image of God. We're not going to replace God. We're just going to give them an image. We need something cool and something strong, something that looks virile like, like this. Or actually probably more like this. A golden calf. 
And so he set up shrines in the north and the south. He totally changed God's system of worship. He gave them an image to worship and said, this is your God, go worship it. And it was a massive success. People loved it. It makes cultural sense. It's relevant. It's convenient. It's visual. It's a religion created by people, for people. It's everything everyone wanted. Everyone liked it. Except God. One, just a little detail. See, God, I, you know, God is actually, I think he's pretty surprisingly flexible on most issues. But for some reason, how people come to him, he's really, really strict on that one. Like, he thinks he can set all the rules about how people come to him. And in the Old Testament, he does with such excruciating detail that it's hard to believe. Have you read the book of Leviticus? Jeroboam's sin ends up being this. He first ignores the parts of the Bible that he doesn't like. And then over time, people begin to forget who God is. They start thinking of God every time they show up to worship. He looks like a golden cow to them. So they start thinking of God like a golden cow. If you want to ruin your relationship with God, the surest place to start is to just ignore the parts of the Bible you don't like, and eventually you will forget who God is entirely. So, I mean, like, that whole thing about Jesus being the only way, that part is terrible. Let's get rid of that. And that all those sections of the Bible that talk about God tells us what our, our relationships are supposed to look like and gender roles and sex, that's awful. Let's get rid of that. All that stuff about giving your money away, there's parts about judgment and wrath, no thanks. What I want to do is I want to take the Bible, and I do believe the Bible, I, I do want to follow God, but I really like the part about God being love. I really like the part where Jesus is like picking up little kids. That's the God I worship. And that's what they do. They take the word of God and they pick and choose the parts they like and they just ignore the parts that they don't like. And soon they've created a God of their own imagination. If we follow Jeroboam's lead and ignore the parts of the Bible we do not like, we can make it relevant and attractive and contemporary. We can make it a faith that people really want. And we can ensure that people have no real relationship with God. You cannot have a real relationship with someone who can't disagree with you. If God can ever disagree with you, you do not have a relationship with the real God. You have a relationship with the God of your own imagination. And that's what it became for them. God became their servant. He's supposed to do their will. He became a rab lucky rabbit's foot that they would rub for good luck. They would pick and choose what they wanted to believe and in the end they forgot who God was entirely. You fast forward 50, 56 years from this time period and this is what brings us to this. Ahab is now ruler of Israel in the north. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that's, he not only considered it trivial to forget who God was and to ignore God's word, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Here's the deal. Being an ancient Near Eastern king was either really good or really bad. 
Like if things worked out for you, you got, you got a temple, you got a harem, you got a palace, you got slaves and servants, your own army, everyone did what you said, it was awesome. But if things didn't work out, your options were pretty limited. On the one hand, you could get assassinated. But on the other hand, if, if a neighboring king came in, what they would do is they would come in and they would cut off your thumbs, gouge out your eyes, and then keep you on a leash underneath your, their table to beg for food. Literally, this is the stories we have from this time period. So Ahab, he comes, becomes king in this northern kingdom, and he looks around, and specifically, he's going to look due north here. I think I'm stuck. Zap. Zap. All right, well, he looks due north. You just believe me. Just north of here is a place called Phoenicia. Huh? Yeah. And he looks up, and Phoenicia in the center is the, the king of Sidon. He's actually the king. We would know this region as Phoenicia. And this place, like, if you look up there and you think about it, this is the place where Ethbal, he's the king there, these are the guys who are, like, cutting edge in their time period. They came up with the, the first alphabet. They're famous for their purple dye, these snails that was, like, coveted by every king throughout the region. So all these luxury goods. And they also were known for, for sailing and for ships around the sea. So by 600 BC, they had circumnavigated Africa. Do you know it took European explorers, it wasn't until 1497 until Europeans could do that. 600 BC, these were genius people, but don't, don't, don't confuse them in here. Just because they had beautiful writing and purple things and lots of ships did not make them nice people. <laughs> they were terrible. During this time, Ethbal, their king, was a bloodthirsty monster. According to an ancient historian named Neander, he was actually the high priest of Baal. And his, his name literally means, I'm with Baal. And his family had the right to the throne. So you know, you know what he did? He did what any reasonable Phoenician would do during that time. If you find out you have a right to the throne, he went out, he hunted down all of his brothers and murdered them. Made himself king. And he sees this vast empire of the Phoenicians expanding, going all over the world. And Ahab looks over at Ethbal, looks at his thumbs, and says, Uh-oh, do you want to be friends? Because if we're enemies, I'm dead. And so what Ethbal does is he gives him his daughter, Jezebel. And she is a woman, as you may or may not know. But she's a woman just like her dear old dad. She is a bloodthirsty, evil woman. From a, pure, from a point of like pragmatism, Ahab's marriage to Jezebel is actually a stroke of genius, right? He's making an alliance with their most powerful enemy. The only problem with that is that it includes this. Ahab married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So I want you to see this progression down the toilet from the time of Jeroboam to the time of Ahab here. We're going to have this where God's people ignore the parts of the Bible that they don't like, and then they forget who God is, which leads to them replacing God with other things. And when we get here, we're going to reach new lows. When you read this, it says, He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. He built a temple! 
for this foreign god, something never before that had happened in Israel. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Why? Why in the world would someone be tempted to replace the true God of the universe with some ridiculous ancient idol like Baal or Asherah. In uh, 1928, there was a farmer in an area called Raz Shamra, Syria. And he's plowing. You know those old plows that hooks up to the oxen and the plow digs in and you goad the oxen. And he's going along and the, uh, the plow got stuck on something. And he thought it was just stuck on a rock. That So he goaded the oxen harder and harder until finally it came open. But what opened at that time was this. And he had discovered the ancient city of Ugarit. Now in Ugarit, if you, it's vast actually, if you dig through all the stuff, they found this treasure within that. The, the library of Ugarit, where we come up with the language Ugaritic, was introduced to the world. And these ancient peoples in that library, they had collected, because the Phoenicians traveled so much, they had collected all these different mythologies from Egypt and and Assyria and all these different ones. But there was, in particular, a collection of Canaanite mythology that for the first time ever told us the full story of why people would be tempted to worship the Canaanite gods. As you read through these stories, they paint a picture of what life worshiping these gods was like. They tell a story of why people of God would be tempted to replace Yahweh with these gods. And let me introduce you to two of them, the two main ones that come up in Scripture again and again. The first is one called Asherah. She actually goes by a variety of names, but this is, this is the main picture we should have of her. It's this. She's the goddess of fertility. She's literally a sex god. She makes crops bountiful and women and cattle pregnant. And her word Asherah literally means upright or erect or happy. And so in order to worship her, this sex god, what they would do is they would set up these poles, these Asherah poles throughout the towns. And they were literally, could be translated, happy poles. I'm going to leave it to you what worship looked like at the happy poles. Enough said. The next guy, the most important god of their deity, was a guy named Baal. And that hand was actually originally a lightning bolt. Baal is the head honcho of the Canaanite pantheon. He defeats the god Yom, the god of chaos, the god of the sea. He holds it back. That's why the Phoenicians can travel over the sea and no other people can. Because we worship Baal and he's defeated the sea. He's defeated Yom. He also holds back death, Mot, the evil god Mot, who comes after them every winter, every dry season to try and take everything away from them. So, this might not mean much to us, but Baal was fundamentally a rain god who hurled lightning bolts. Asherah was fundamentally a fertility goddess who made babies. Now, we tend to think our food comes from Wegmans, and we keep our money in the bank. But if you live in a world where you grow all your food, where all of your worldly wealth is walking around you on four hooves, 
Tell me, how important is fertility? How important is rain? It's everything. It is sex and money is everything in that world. Those are the supreme gods. Those are the gods who can make you wealthy, who can make or break you. So what we learn, if you read through this literature, is that whatever gives me pleasure or makes me happy, that's what's good. That's what's true. That's what's right. What you learn as you read through this literature is that money is power and you should do everything you can to get money. What you learn is that sex is just another form of power. If you read through this literature, and I wouldn't recommend it for younger folks, it is literally pornographic. That's the only word you could use to describe it. Ironically, I read it for seminary. (laughs) If you read through this literature, you will find that people have no value in and of themselves. They're an ends to a mean, uh, they're a means to an end that you are to use people to get what you want out of life, that the supreme gods of money and sex rule the world. They can tell you where to live, who your friends are, who to marry. They can make awful demands. They can even tell you to sacrifice your children to ensure that you can have money. The god of sex can enslave you, control your thoughts, and tell you who you are. Now that is the story 3,000 years ago, the supreme gods of sex and money. Now I want you to imagine right now, Think back, you know, imagine that you dug up that hole and read all this, how awful that would be. Now imagine, imagine we fast forward 3,000 more years. Phoenixville was long gone at that point, right? And there's some guy out in his garden digging up something, and he pops up a rock, and he's like, wait a second, that's not a rock. He opens it up, and there's this, this whole, whole system. He discovers the ancient city of Phoenixville 3,000 years later. And he starts looking through, oh, let's look through their stories. Let's do their, look through their movies. Let's look at the websites they looked at. Let's look at how they related to one another and how they lived around their jobs and their houses and what they devoted themselves to, what was most important. What are the objects that they worshipped in Phoenixville in 2014, 3,000 years ago? Tell me, do you think it would be much different? I submit to you that sex and money, they might look a lot different today. But they are ancient gods. And the gods of the Canaanites are still worshipped in America today. So here's the progression. They ignore the parts of the Bible they don't like. They forget who God really is. They replace God with other things. And then the author of 1 Kings is going to show us how the people hit rock bottom. After you've given up God, this is what happens. In Ahab's time, Hillel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Ibrahim, and he set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Shigub. If you're pregnant and looking for a baby's name, you can thank me later. In accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now this is absolutely meaningless at one level. But let's dig into this for a second. Joshua, son of Nun, that's, that's Joshua, the guy who led God's people into the, into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 5 and 6, God's leading his people into the promised land, and the Israelites are this pathetic, tribal, nomadic people, and they knew it. And they come to the first great obstacle. God's giving you this land, but then they come to these giant walls, Jericho. And they look at it and say, oh no, 
We can't do this. God, what are we supposed to do? And what does God say? Send in the marching band. You're like, excuse me? It's like, send in the marching band. Seriously. March around the city every day. Just do it. They're like, okay. So every day, the marching band gets up. They march around the city. (laughs) The people of Jericho must have looked at them and said, oh, this is going to be great. (laughs) But on the seventh day, the marching band marches around the city seven times. They blow their trumpets. And what happens? The walls, the impenetrable walls of Jericho crash to the ground. It's a miracle. But it's not just a miracle. It's a sign to the new generation, to that generation that's called to take the promised land. It's a sign that God is with them. That there is no wall too big. There is no enemy too strong. That all the strength of the world cannot stand against God's word. It's a sign that faith in God is our only true security in this world. And when Joshua saw what God just did, he said in a curse, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he's going to lay the foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. He looks back at this city crumbled on the ground. And Jericho is a symbol of a world that values strength over faith. It's a symbol of a world that values my will over God's will. It values my word over God's word. It values my control over God's control. And Joshua looks at that and says, May God's people never live like those people from Jericho. May Jericho and all that it stands for remain unbuilt, uh, collapsed, demolished forever. May no one ever rebuild that symbol. But in Ahab's time, They rebuilt it and all that it stood for. They forgot that God's word is mightier than man's word. They thought their control was better than God's control. They thought their will could be everything. The language is a bit ambiguous, but most scholars believe that what they're talking about here when he lost his sons is actually child sacrifice. There was a practice at the time among the pagans that when they would build a foundation, they would kill a child, a son, and then plant them into the foundation so that the gods would be pleased and bless it. And it says he sacrificed his two sons to pagan gods that Jericho was rebuilt as a blasphemous sign that we no longer need God. We no longer want what God has. We no longer listen to Him. We've forgotten who God is and we've replaced Him with these lies, sex and money that we think that can take care of us. God's people had hit rock bottom. So what is God to do They'd ignored his word. They forgot who he really is. They replaced him with other things. They completely lost any sense of right and wrong, justice, mercy, love, compassion. So Ahab's sitting there. And there's a knock at the door. King Ahab, there's someone to see you. Where's he from? I don't know. He said something about Tishbe. 
Who, who sent him? He says that God sent him. What's his name? His name is my God is Yahweh. Now Elisha the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except my word. The God people had ignored the parts of the Bible they didn't like. They forgot who God really is. They replaced him with other gods. Therefore, God gave them over to their own gods. I want you to hear this. God is saying, you think Baal can take care of you. You think that he is the God who provides you rain. You think he's the one who gives you all your blessings of life. You think he's the God who, who funds the economy, who runs everything. Then I'm going to let Baal take care of you. And I'm going to stop. And God shuts off the valve. You want to trust Baal? You want to believe that Baal brings the rain? You want to believe that he brings the blessing, the wealth, the security, the joy of life? That he's the one who makes you happy? Then I'm going to let Baal take care of you. And we're going to see how that goes. And it goes poorly. That without God there would be no rain. And without rain there would be no crops. And without crops there would be no economy. And without an economy there would be no food. And without food there would be no life. Because belief in a false God is a faith that cannot save you. Elijah, his name, his very name, Yahweh is my God, forces us to ask a question, who is my God? I just want to close with a few questions. Who do you really trust? Who or what in your life can tell you where you live, what to do, and who you are? Are you willing to listen to God's word? Is it the authority in your life? Or do you feel like you can ignore certain parts, the parts you don't like? Do you trust the one true God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's revealed himself most fully in the man Jesus Christ? Or have you created your own version of God? Have you replaced God with other things? Do I look to my job or my house or my looks or my abilities or my kids or anything to be my source of hope and satisfaction and security? Do I let money control my life? Do I let my sexual preference tell me who I am? Do I just float along in this world or can I say with Elijah that if nobody else believes and nobody else stands, and the whole world goes down the toilet. My God is Yahweh. It doesn't go well for the Israelites. You know, once you get so deep, if you've gotten used to ignoring God's word, if you've gotten used to replacing God with other things, if we trivialize God, it's really, really hard to get back. But I do want to say that God does offer repentance. If you repent of trusting in other gods and chasing other things, and if you believe that Jesus Christ alone, our tr one true God, he's the source of my happiness, security, he is my God, he can tell me what to do, that you can live in a relationship with him now and forevermore. But it's not easy. Let me pray. Father God, as we look at this terrible time in Israel's history, Lord, and we look at this uh, 
horrible walking away from you and, and this distance from you, Lord, that people just ignored your word and forgot who you were and re- tried to replace you with stupid, stupid things, Lord. God, I'm just concerned for our own nation. I'm concerned for our own city. I'm concerned for myself, for my family, Lord. God, I pray that you give us a heart of repentance to look to you as our God. God, we don't want to uh, go down that direction. We've seen where it goes. But God, we want to taste what Elisha tasted. We want to we have that bold, absolute assurance to follow you wherever it takes us, Lord, that you will care for us. God, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, or who thinks they know you, but has never actually submitted their life to you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in them, God, that it would break through, and that right now they would give that up and they would place their faith in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.